You're listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. It's the place we talk about everything that's important and nothing that isn't. I'm your host, Vinay Prasad. In today's episode, we're going to talk about some interesting things. First, we're going to talk about why some cardiologists are vocal in their opposition to discussing and criticizing clinical trials on Twitter. Next, I'm going to make a very brief comment about Durvalumab in stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer, a trial called Pacific, which recently announced positive overall survival results. That's something that should be pretty good. I'm going to talk about a provocative paper written by Rasha Lamy, Alexandra Naubar, and Daryl Francis, appearing in the journal Heart. It's entitled Percutaneous Coronary Intervention for Stable Coronary Artery Disease, and it's quite an interesting review. Finally, I'll be sitting down to interview Dr. Rebecca Cooney, who is the North American Executive Editor of The Lancet. We'll talk about journal publishing, and I can assure listeners there are many interesting things that are going to come up. So, stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenary session podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? are happy to field your requests. Okay, first, the cardiologists. Now, I'm a little sorry to be picking on cardiology for this particular example, although several of these slides were presented at a meeting called TCT. TCT, of course, stands for Transcatheter Cardiovascular Therapeutics, and of course, it's a meeting you can't miss if you're an interventional cardiologist. It's a must-attend meeting. And I think it's important to note that this meeting has occurred in the aftermath of a very important year in interventional cardiology. We saw the publication of the Orbita trial, which Dr. Cooney and I will be discussing a little bit later on this podcast. And it's fair to say that trial made major waves within the field. And there was another trial this year that stirred the waters. It was a trial called Ischemia, a large NHLBI-sponsored study, publicly funded, which recently underwent a change in the primary endpoint due to rather poor accrual and lower than anticipated event rates, prompting a committee to meet and decide upon the change. Now, this change was a bit controversial. It changed a bias-resistant endpoint, an endpoint that was unlikely to be affected by providers' knowledge of whether or not an intervention was received, to a bias-prone endpoint or by a susceptible endpoint, an endpoint that could conceivably be impacted by the knowledge that somebody had or did not have a certain procedure. And that endpoint had been criticized in a commentary about the ischemia trial entitled moving the gold posts into unblinded territory the larger lessons of defer and fame too and their implications for the shifting endpoints in ischemia and this commentary stirred quite a controversy both in the professional press and on twitter and so in the aftermath of both of these two things it's fair to say that some perhaps a vocal fraction of cardiologists at this national meeting have not been happy with Twitter. I noticed just a couple of slides that, um, that I saw tweeted out that I think um, drew my attention. 
So let me read you one. This is a PowerPoint slide flashed on the screen at the meeting. Twitter and clinical trials. Twitter era has shifted commentary from end of trial to during its conduct. Rapidly spread sound bites based on incomplete information about ongoing trials can adversely affect participant recruitment and retention, undermining the trial's integrity. And a follow-up tweet. This, this person asks, Do you agree that Twitter can spread falsehoods and that might harm trials and patients' participation? Well, it's quite a provocative claim, uh, particularly because it's levied in the context of the ischemia trial. Now, as I just mentioned, ischemia is the trial where the endpoints were changed because of poor accrual and lower than anticipated event rate. And now someone wants us to believe that it's because people were critical of that endpoint switch. That's why the trial had poor accrual and lower than anticipated event rates. Um, but that is literally putting the cart in front of the horse. It happened in the exact reverse order. It was because you had poor accrual that people complained about the endpoint being switched. And that is not the reason there was poor accrual. It's what happened afterwards. See, I would suggest that people who hold this view pull out something that I like to call a calendar. On the calendar, they should write the dates during which there was poor accrual to the trial. Then they should write the date on which the endpoint was switched. And then they should write the date when the Twitter discussion happened. And then they will see that the accrual preceded the discussion on Twitter, thus making the claim that the Twitter discussion has severely hindered the trial inaccurate and an example of something blatantly incorrect. The second example that emerged from this national conference is this quite extensive slide that I thought was, was quite interesting. It's entitled The Twitter Filibuster. Here's how it goes. Certain high-profile individuals use Twitter extensively to call attention to errors, misrepresentations, or falsehoods in the work of others. Um, those individuals are diligent in replying to any tweet or retweet that they consider erroneous. Same said individuals do this by constructing extensive threads of consecutive tweets. By constructing their arguments in a long series of tweets, if I were to tweet my disagreement with a particular tweet, I'm effectively silenced because of the nature of the threads means that the thread carries on with each successive tweet from the high-profile individual with far more weight than any ignored side thread created by my disagreeing tweet. Therefore, by tweeting with enough volume, high-profile individuals can essentially silence disagreement by ignoring dissenting tweets and carrying on with the original thread regardless. So rather than democratizing cardio Twitter and diminishing the voice of top people, power in such arguments is being concentrated in the hands of those with the largest followers and who tweet the most number of consecutive tweets, regardless of the validity of their arguments, hence the term, the Twitter filibuster. Well, just a few pointers. Number one. If you were really savvy with Twitter, you wouldn't have called it the Twitter filibuster. You would have called it the Twillibuster. And by using the more clever name Twillibuster, you would have likely generated a little bit more interest in that. And that's just a Twitter pearl that, that I'm giving you for free. The next thing I want to say is just to point out the irony that complaining that your voice is not being heard on Twitter is something that is much less of a problem in 2018 than it had ever been in prior eras of time. For a long period of human history, accelerated by the printing press, we've had something called a book. And in a book, someone can make an argument, and that argument may have something that someone else disagrees with. 
But that person who disagrees with the book is not allowed to interrupt the book midstream and insert their argument. Isn't that unfair? Doesn't that effectively silence the critic? Somebody has to fully read the book before they will even turn to the criticizing material about the book. In the world of journals, you have to read a journal article whether or not you agree with it or not. And not all letters to the editor get published. And you're not allowed to interrupt the journal article with your criticism midstream. This is not democratizing. The printing press merely allows those with the most powerful voices to exert their dominance over the unsung heroes who want to interject. The point I'm trying to make here is that this is, of course, a ludicrous complaint. But it's something that, if anything, Twitter has made better than in prior eras because you can actually comment in the same media and maybe you won't get as much attention for your tweet as the person originally tweeting but it's far better than in the era when people were writing books and the book was the largest way in which an argument was disseminated there you would essentially have no say people may not even know your criticism exists so to criticize the media for something this media does much better than prior media um, seems to me uh, to miss the point. It seems to me to be a disingenuous criticism. It's a criticism that if you sat down and thought about it for 15 minutes, you would realize is a foolish criticism. So this, this will lead me to the question of why are people posing this criticism? But before I get to that, I just want to give one more example. Um, it's always nice to have three, three examples of cardiologists not being happy with Twitter. Here's the, the third one. This was a blog post written by a um, uh, a vocal critic of Twitter. Um, this person writes, quote, I do not have a Twitter account. I've never tweeted. I follow no one on Twitter and no one follows me. And that is true for the majority of the leaders of medicine in my generation. But based on the recent feedback I received, I decided to wander onto Twitter, end quote. And after looking on Twitter for a while, this person decides it's just professional cynics or self-congratulation or emotional reactions. Um, quote, I tried really hard to find evidence of evidence. I looked for reliable information about advances in clinical care, but how is that possible in 280 characters? Um, and then finally, this person concludes that really there's nothing out on Twitter that is useful for a discussion. Okay. So these are the three examples. Um, and I want to say one quote by Dr. Benjamin Mazur that I think is really on point. And this is an essay he wrote about, about Twitter and medical communication. Quote, yet although all forms of human communication have unique aspects that must be considered, ultimately the end result is the same, transfer of knowledge and creation of social relationships. An editorial in a medical journal warning physicians of the professional risks of the printing press, for example, would appear comically out of place today. We suggest this risk-based framing of social media will look out of place in the near future. And I think he hits the nail on the head. It is not anything about the media Twitter that is problematic. It is simply a tool to communicate. It has its strengths and weaknesses like any other tool. On the question of the filibuster, if anything, I would argue it has a strength. It, it allows people to respond in a way that never really existed um, throughout most of human history and has really only been facilitated by the role of the internet. So one must wonder why. What is the real root motivation here. Why are people saying things that are ludicrous, that a trial with poor accrual that changed its endpoints and was criticized, the reason it's accruing poorly is because of the criticism, or that I'm not allowed to get a word in edgewise on Twitter, or that there's nothing at all in the entire 
uh, entire website that is of use or is useful or worth reading. Why would anyone take such a, I would say, ludicrous position to argue? And I think that the only conclusion I can come to is that this is a bit threatening. This threatens the traditional power dynamic that has existed in medicine for many years, where a handful of experts who participate in a decade-long game, political game, amass capital in their relative fields, gain importance, are appointed to the editorial boards, control the dialogue that happens within a field, and this is the way in which medicine has worked for many years, a traditional, hierarchical, eminence-based medicine model. And if you've played by those rules and you've earned your way to the top, um, I imagine it would be deeply threatening to see people who are coming out of private practice, people who are perhaps junior professors, people who are from other nations, coming in and commenting about medical articles in a way that generates widespread interest. And there's another point I want to make. This is a point made by Swapnil Hiremath on Twitter. Quote, medical Twitter is still a meritocracy. Venkmorthy and Professor Daryl Francis started with zero followers. Nephrologists like me follow them because they provide value. Earn my interest and I will follow you. Don't cry filibuster. This is not an oligarchy of senators, end quote. So I think he's hitting the nail on the head that some of the most captivating critics in cardiology, Venkmorthy, Daryl Francis, David Brown, John Mandrola. These are not outsiders. These are professors. These are practitioners in the field. But they are saying things that are outside the standard canon, the canonical view, the accepted narrative. And they're doing it in a way using data, visual graphics, in a very compelling way. And that's the reason why they're gaining popularity. That's the reason why people are following them. Um, so again, I would just say that in every moment in history where there's a new technology that changes the rules of communication, there will always be a group that has done well under the old system that is angry about it. And I understand why that happens. But if you want to be angry about it, the least you can do is to try to put together credible arguments about why this is bad and not just simply make incoherent rants and literally try to distort timelines to make your narrative fit. I think it is, it's really clear to everyone that this is a disingenuous criticism. And there's nothing I hate more than disingenuous criticism. The last thing I'd say is, if cardiology really wants to do this a little bit better, they can take a lesson from other fields. In other fields, what we do at national meetings is we put out lists of, these are people you should follow and, and let me, let me assure listeners that those will be people who don't stray too far from the beaten path. And that's why we're curating the list of people we want you to listen to. So if they really wanted to take a lesson, they, could, they should just start doing that and, and try to redirect the traffic to the people who can go ahead and toe the line. Okay, so that's it on medical Twitter, ruffling feathers in cardiology. Now I want to talk about dervalimumab after chemoradiotherapy in stage three, non-small cell lung cancer. This is a little trial called Pacific. Now a while back when the initial results of the Pacific trial were published, it showed that dervalimumab when added as a consolidative therapy after stage three chemoradiotherapy for non-small cell lung cancer conferred a PFS, though it had not yet conferred an OS benefit. And there were some people 
who said, the standard in stage three lung cancer is to show OS benefit before we change our practice, and we're gonna wait for that. And now the wait is over. As of September 25th, 2018, in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Pacific investigators announced that the overall survival rate was superior in the DERVA group. Let me read you. The 24-month OS rate was 66% in DERVA as compared with 55% in the placebo group. Two-sided p-value of 0.005. DERVA prolonged OS as compared with placebo. Well, there you have it. OS is better. Everything is hunky-dory. It's all, it's all good. It's done. What more do you need to know? Well, there's one more thing we need to know, which is that when this study was conducted between May 2014 and April 2016, 713 patients were randomized to this treatment. If you were randomized to the control group in which you did not receive antibody-directed therapy against PD-1 or PDL one when you had progressive disease, of which a sizable proportion of patients did, when you had progressive disease and you were treated, were you treated according to prevailing standard of care at the time? In other words, immunotherapy had already proven benefit in the second line setting. It had made some inroads into the front line setting for those with exquisitely high PDL1 staining. Were those patients giving PDL1 or PD1 antibodies in concordance with the standard of care. Now, let me stress why this is the critical question. When you're asking yourself if a therapy should be moved to an earlier stage than a stage is already being used in, the question is, by using it earlier than you otherwise would, do you confer a benefit to the patient by changing the sequence of the therapy? So, as the Pacific trial was running, we learned that immunotherapy has a benefit for patients with high PDL1 staining in the frontline setting and for pretty much all patients without driver mutation cancer in the second line setting. And thus, many of these patients should have gotten nivolumab or pembrolizumab upon progression sometime during the course of therapy. According to the supplemental appendix of the Pacific trial, we learn that 52 out of 237 patients who were initially assigned to placebo ultimately received Nevo or Pembro. And this is the question, is it okay to have 20% of patients on this study in the control arm subsequently receive immunotherapy? Is that representative of prevailing standard of care in the United States? And that's a question I don't have the answer to, and I might be able to untangle a little bit more with some more study data, particularly particularly study data by geographic location in terms of the use of post-protocol therapy. Um, in a future episode of this podcast, I'm going to take a deep dive into the issue that we're talking about here, crossover. There are two situations for crossover. There are situations where crossover is desirable, and there are situations where it's undesirable. And you can either get it or not get it, or no one can tell you if you got it or not. And in a future episode, we're going to run through this two by three table and go through all the possibilities. And now for the final topic I want to cover in this week's plenary session monologue, percutaneous coronary intervention for stable coronary artery disease. So this is a tour de force review written by Rasha Lamy, Alexandra Naubar, and Daryl Francis. It appears in the journal Heart. 
And I would highly recommend this to any interested reader in the history of PCI performed for chronic stable angina. I think it's a nice summary of the history of this condition and the available evidence over time. I'll read you some select parts. Four decades ago, PCI was introduced to relieve angina and stable CAD. Today, over 500,000 PCI procedures are performed annually worldwide for this indication. While in the setting of acute coronary syndrome, PCI reduces death and subsequent MI in stable CAD, its role is less clear. And indeed, that is the case. That is the crux of the issue here. An intervention that works very well in severe disease states may or may not work well in early or lesser disease states. That's an it's a central lesson of medicine. It's a central question in medicine, and it's nicely captured by the authors here. So, the authors give a nice little history of the role of PCI on MI and mortality rates, and they end with the statement about COURAGE trial. COURAGE addressed many of the perceived limitations in previous trials. With a combined primary endpoint of death and MI, COURAGE randomized 2,287 patients with CAD and evidence of ischemia to PCI versus no PCI. At a median follow-up of 4.6 years, there were no reduction in events. And then the next section has a really wonderful part. It's called Desperately Seeking Significance. These results disappointed interventional cardiologists. The search was on for limitations of those trials. I'll just pause here and make mention. You know, this is one of the real key takeaways in medicine. Doctors are smart people. And when they've been doing something for many, many years, and they have received personal gratitude or appreciation for having done that from patients, when they genuinely did that with the best of intentions in their heart, and when they received a small but real financial reimbursement for that procedure, the combination of those factors is a highly addictive substance and doctors become addicted to it. Years later, when they are presented with negative data, data that does not confirm their preconceived notions, they will turn that formidable intellect into finding limitations of the contradictory studies rather than identifying or generating better data that validates those practices. That's, that's not the way we like to do things. We like to criticize the negative studies without making mention of the fact that the practice was never really based on strong positive studies. So back to Rush Alami and, and colleagues. A common complaint was that event prevention medications and trials was now too good for PCI to show a benefit. Oddly, this was never argued by interventional cardiologists as a reason to stop doing PCI, but only as a criticism of the trials. Another complaint was that previous trials inevitably did not use the latest generation of stents. Eventually, a 93,000-person network meta-analysis managed to suggest a survival benefit with PCI with newer generation stents by a chain of indirect comparisons. Thank goodness for that. The last hope for PCI came to the ischemia trial, the NHLBI-sponsored study. And the results of the ischemia trial are still pending, though recently the authors changed the primary endpoint from a bias-resistant one to a bias-susceptible one. Uh, Dr. Rush Alami and colleagues discuss the use of urgent revascularization as an endpoint in clinical trials. They make a really great point here. There is, of course, a fundamental problem in testing PCI for its ability to prevent having to do PCI later, i.e. urgent revascularization. However effective it may be, the arm which does PCI now on 100% of patients will end up doing more PCI in total than the arm which does not do PCI now, but only does it if required later. 
See, this is a very clever observation that if one of your endpoints is the need for revascularization, you will always have done more in the arm in which everyone was revascularized at the outset. How can you deal with this problem? Well, the solution to this problem, as the authors put, quote, the solution to this problem is to blank out the first PCI in the PCI arm. To do this, one needs the readership to accept that the first PCI in the PCI arm must be ignored, but the first PCI in the control arm must not. Interventional cardiologists generally accept this approach. The explanation usually given is that the first PCI in the PCI arm is done in a controlled circumstance, whereas the first PCI in the control arm might be performed in an emergent situation. Oh, that's a very clever, clever point the authors make. You really have to convince the audience that that is an acceptable thing to do. And the reality is it's likely not a fair way to look at the data. Conclusions. PCI is unlikely to ever be shown to reduce mortality for chronic stable angina. The final remaining question is over its efficacy in relieving angina. If we as interventional cardiologists wish to lead the process of answering this, we should demonstrate a mature understanding of how to proceed. The first step is to stop resisting what the anti-anginal medication field has considered obvious for decades, namely that we should routinely conduct our experiments with double-blind placebo control. So this was a great article, and uh, the only thing I would add to it is something that I will talk a little bit about in the next section with uh, Dr. Cooney, um, which is that when it comes to angina, we've had evidence since the 1950s that there is the potential for a placebo response to an ineffective surgery that was only revealed through sham controls. Uh, this led Dr. Adam Sifu and I in 2015 to write an ending medical reversal that we believe the obligation is on stenting and chronic stable angina to show an improvement in outcome over sham controls. This led to the trial Orbital, which found a 16-second difference, which was not statistically significant, in modified bruise protocol exercise time. But the question remains open whether those 16 seconds represents the true therapeutic effect of the procedure or perhaps something else. And hopefully, in a forthcoming article, Jenny Gill and I will take a close look at that question. But I can't, I can't spoil it for now. So, that was a summary of this week's news. We saw a lot of cardiologists quite upset about medical Twitter, mostly because it probably challenges traditional hierarchies of dominance and power. We saw Durvalimumab reporting overall survival results, though we wondered whether or not post-protocol therapy of IO in the control arm was appropriate. Finally, we had a brief and wonderful history of the review of PCI and chronic stable angina by doctors Rush Alami and colleagues that appeared in the journal Heart. It's a great article. It's worth your time. We'll talk about some of these themes throughout the interview that follows. So stay tuned. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Rebecca Cooney. Dr. Cooney is the North American Executive Editor of The Lancet. She has a background in psychology with a focus in neuroscience, but she's been editing for, for several years now uh, in a variety of contexts, initially in the New York Academy of Sciences, uh, and now for The Lancet. Dr. Cooney, thank you so much for joining us here on Plenary Session. Thank you. Glad to be here. This was sprung on you on short notice, and you were very gracious to agree. Um, when I told you you'd be giving the plenary session today, is, is this what you had in mind here? And this is a much more sophisticated uh, setup than I'm used to. Oh, really? So, yeah. oh. But you make wonderful podcasts for The Lancet. Um, and I have to thank you for having me on there a while back to discuss Right to Try. Um, so I had a few questions for you, and if you don't mind, uh, maybe... I guess my first question for you is, 
What made you decide um, to move in the direction of becoming an editor? Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things that uh, contributed to that decision um, was the uh, funding milieu of the early 2000s. And um, especially when you're coming from a program and doing uh, neuroscience research, specifically I was doing um, fMRI. And, you know, to to run a study that was powered, to have enough people, we're talking millions of dollars of grants. Mm -hmm. And so at that, that stage, it just concerned me to stay on the treadmill of grant funding. Mm-hmm. and um, But at the same time, one of my favorite elements of research is the packaging and sort of the, once you've got data, getting things cleaned up, mm-hmm. ready to go, telling the story around them. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself, um, especially, uh, you know, postdoc stages of you know, that being my favorite part of it mm-hmm. was helping people come back, especially you've had data sitting around for a while, like, let's get this out. And, um, and so I realized that was really one of my aptitudes was kind of the packaging. Synthesis, and, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and I was fortunate enough to kind of spend my early days editing at the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences, which was really um, an in- introduction to all different types of science. So, um, so that was really helpful to kind of see the different types of analyses that different, you know, ecologists were doing as opposed to people in neuroscience and um, having a flexible appreciation for how things kind of fit together in that way. So, and then I've now been at the Lancet for about six and a half years mm-hmm. and um, and continue to see lots of different types of science, but um, definitely much more in the health and medicine space. I see. I, I guess I hadn't fully appreciated that. You're right. At, at the New York Academy, you would have seen a breadth of science across many disciplines. Um, are there idiosyncrasies to certain fields? Were there things that stuck out with you? One of the things that I find really interesting, and much of this has to do, I think, with um, reporting guidelines. Um, so looking back on, uh, you know, some of my the favorite early projects, you know, we did something that looked at um, different 100-year versus 400-year flood maps of, mm-hmm. like, Manhattan and mm-hmm. um, to see, you know, just what people are looking at and how to represent those data was really, you know, a fascinating element of that. And it makes you appreciate how um, visually complex and also how um, visually simple we portray data mm-hmm. and that there's really room for both of those alongside. And mm-hmm. um, so that that's one of the things that has always um, stuck with me. But I also think, um, I miss some of the uh, the the fun titles of you know people. We we had a paper um, that I worked on a long time ago that looked at the interior singlet and we used to call it the dark side of the moon. Uh-huh. And there isn't much um, space anymore. And given sort of consort guidelines and and really you know like uh, non declamatory titles and things to to do that. So that's one of the things that I appreciate about. Um, other disciplines is, is some of the the flexibility and creativity that's there. I see. That's a, that's a very interesting observation. And um, 
it really gets me thinking about, you make a really excellent point about the visual representation of data. I think about Edward Tuft and some of those, um, what's the graph of Napoleon's march into Russia and the army forces over time as sort of a, a single visual representation of a complex event um, that captures so much and visually is just so striking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's, you know, there's, um, I think one image that has really, um, struck a lot of people that the Lancet has um, put out recently uh, was for the Commission on Dementia. Mm. And they have this really interesting, um, almost like snaky looking cascade of risk factors around dementia. And it was just such a simple yet effective and unusual and um, novel way mm -hmm. of, of presenting um, those risk factors. And I think um, it's it's a it's a great place too where having people with other aptitudes, uh, you know, around data and getting them involved and um, having graphic designers and and how we communicate science um, can get involved. And uh, you know, we're very fortunate at the Lancet to have sort of an in-house team that can re-render images. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm just struck with you know some of the the amazing different ways that people. Um, manage to express the sentiments of their data. And I think Twitter, too, has been just a hugely important way of, you know, just the advent of infographics, mm -hmm. too, and mm -hmm. how almost every major paper now we're kind of thinking about how to to work those messages into that simple visual format. And kind of, you know, who would have known that USA Today would have been kind of the precursor of doing that, oh, reading the, at a sixth grade level. Uh -huh. And yeah, but at the same time, you know, making um, images that are striking and then stick with you. You know, I should have known uh, from your lecture this morning, and listeners should know that you gave a wonderful grand rounds on, uh, on gender bias in publishing. And um, I should have known from your lecture that you care deeply about the visual representation of data because your visual presentation uh, was spectacular. I mean, uh, you know, oh, I was thanks. really struck by how clear your slides were, not over busy. It clearly reflected somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about that. And uh, I guess uh, I, I hadn't really processed that until you started talking about it. I would have to actually give credit to uh, my cognitive neuroscience um, forebears uh, <laughs> for doing that. And I think there was sort of a rule of thumb back in grad school, and this was pre-PowerPoint, uh, mm -hmm. mind you, this was when we actually still had slides and would write with markers and things like that, but that you <laughs> should try and aim for no more than 12 words per slide, which is almost impossible right. to do, mm -hmm. but to really th keep things concise and mm -hmm. talk off that. And I know that's actually you know one of, of many people's um, pet peeves of of going to talks in period you know that that you know you don't want to have somebody just read off mm -hmm. a slide you want them to expound on it so um yet i think and actually you would probably um have some thoughts on this too if i've heard from um a lot of people who teach in uh, medical schools mm -hmm. how the, the sort of flexibility of having being able to give slides and you know an entire lecture to students so that they can absorb it on their own time is really becoming more of a movement, I guess. And so I guess that that competes with the idea of simple slides versus slides right. that actually get to the to the heart of what you need to cover. I see, and that's a, that's a really excellent point. I think people use slides in different ways. There's the slides you use when you give the lecture, and they're the slides the students like to peruse at their leisure. And um, you know, I hear a great deal from the students about how um, all our all their lectures are videotape recorded, and 
for better or worse, there's some people who choose to study in the privacy of their home and watch those videotapes later. And, I, and I've heard from many of the students that some of them watch them at like one point five times speed or two times speed um, to kind of get that content a little bit faster. Um, but I pride myself on, on speaking so quickly that they'll never be able to watch my <laughs> lecture. But you know, you alluded to this that I wanted to ask you about. Um, you know, you've been at The Lancet for six years um, and you alluded to the role of social media. And I want to see, I want to ask you how, how it's kind of changed the way you you think or if it has really played a role in how journals have thought about um, their, their process. Uh, I guess I would say Twitter particularly six years ago I, I didn't use it, and I don't know many people who did. Um, now, I don't know many people who don't use it as a way to kind of at least disseminate, participate in the discussion around papers. Um, has the growing role of social media changed the way you think, um, even in the time you've been at The Lancet, and changed the way the editors think? Um, I do. It's You know, to me, it's really um, a vital way of interacting, and I am doing air quotes to myself of interacting. Um, with researchers and what I would consider opinion leaders. And and that is because of those, specifically those conversations that people have that you might not be privy to otherwise. And so for me, it's one of the most valuable things to see, for example, if we tweet out a paper that's maybe mm-hmm. a bit on the controversial side, mm-hmm. to see how it's received, see what the criticisms are. And, you know, on one hand, it, it can be confirmatory of, you know, maybe some of the issues that were raised during the peer review process that you hoped that had been ironed out or that you felt like the author said sufficiently addressed. But then, then you go, oh, perhaps not if this is what has you people are picking up on. And, and sort of discussing. So um, to me, it's really a useful way to get a read on the, the reception of ideas. And, you know, uh, every journal is made up of people and people make mistakes. And mm-hmm. as a journal, we've clearly made mistakes on occasion. And so it's really, um, it's it's useful to kind of see how, how things get received and that, you know, maybe maybe that's not something that you would do in the future and sort of course correct um, after that. So and in the same way that, you know, in the old days, people might have mm-hmm. done more of that work of kind of monitoring in the context of like academic meetings, because, the you know, mm. science is so globalized mm-hmm. and um, we can't be there for all of those. So it's a really good way to kind of get rid of the distance between people and, and still have those conversations. And I think uh, you just made a really excellent point that I want to echo is just that, you know, um, the Journal of the Lancet and many journals do a wonderful job. No one can or should expect perfection from journals. It's a human endeavor like any other endeavor. And, you know, we're all working towards doing a better job in the future. And even though on this podcast I've been critical of, actually not too much the Lancet, but some other other journals I've been quite critical of, uh, it's not because I'm trying to be too hard on them. It's just because I think that, um, you know, there's room for improvement, but people are doing a, a very good job. I wanted to ask you about and maybe if it's if it's something that you didn't have a hand in um, and you want to move to a different question, that's fine. But I wanted to ask you about Orbita. Ah, okay. Did you play a hand in Orbita? I did not. Oh, okay. Um, 
but um, I I know the authors mm-hmm. um, fairly well now in sort of the the aftermath, mm-hmm. and I've actually been at a couple of cardiology conferences where I've gotten to see, you know, the fact that they have sessions organized entirely around Orbital. a trial. <laughs> yeah, um, so that's been really interesting. So I think um, uh. from my perspective, I've gotten sort of a firsthand glimpse of how that attention affects uh, an author mm. and how do you navigate that mm-hmm. and then but then also see how um, sort of a subdiscipline reacts to that mm-hmm. and you know we clearly do a lot of paper on stents um, and uh, you know in cardiology interventions and and knowing all of those uh, th- that space fairly well and the people that are involved um, it's been very interesting to see. So I want to ask you a, a bunch of questions, but for the sake of the listeners, I'm going to give just a brief synopsis of what we're talking about. They may not all be familiar. Um, but I guess I would tell the listeners a, a couple of things. We're talking about a procedure called stenting for chronic stable angina, um, which is a medical con- condition where you uh, have chest pain or shortness of breath when you exert yourself. And it usually gets better when you stop and rest. And it comes on reproducibility uh, at the same exertion. Um, the, in, the history of angina is a quite remarkable history. Uh, once upon a time, we didn't really know what caused it. Um, over the last 20 years, it's believed to be caused by uh, stenoses of the epicardial vessels. Um, one of the interesting bits of history is in the 1950s, um, there was a procedure that was attempted called the ligation of the internal mammary artery. And it had dramatic anecdotal reports of improving the symptoms of angina. And then in a couple sham controlled studies, one led by a gentleman named Cobb in the New England Journal, it was found to be no better than a sham intervention, um, which raised two provocative things. One, that we had been doing something for years that turned out not to do what we thought it did. And two, that the syndrome of angina was susceptible to a placebo response. Um, Fast forward a little bit, and we moved into the era of coronary stenting. Um, Stenting for chronic stable angina um, was quite common. There's many different surveys, and there's divergent estimates, and I don't want to get into that debate. Uh, In the the mid-2000s, in 2007, there was a trial called Courage um, that randomized patients to stenting plus medical management versus medical management. It was powered to look at cardiovascular endpoints and mortality, and it failed to show an an improvement in in myocardial infarction or survival, and was very provocative. Um, and it ran against what patients believed the procedure did. There have been a number of surveys um, published um, in journals suggesting that patients who undergo the procedure believe it will lower the rate of future heart attacks or improve their longevity. It does neither of those two things. Um, in 2015, you know, Dr. Sifu and I took a look at this, and we talked about it a little bit in our book, where we felt that uh, stenting epicardial vessels for chronic stable angina was due for a sham control study um, because courage had not been sham controlled. It was open. It was open label. Uh, and Daryl Francis and Rasha Lamy from Imperial College London performed such a study um, with around 200 participants randomized to the sham intervention or or actual stenting. Um, they nicely pick single vessel disease, uh, which actually allowed you to really isolate the hypothesis. Because if you have angina and you only have single vessel disease and you stent that single vessel, well, you shouldn't have angina if that's the culprit. Um, and what they found was on the primary endpoint of exercise tolerance, um, that although there was a numerical difference between the two groups, it was 16 seconds, it was not statistically significant, and it was not thought to be clinically meaningful in studies of cardiologists. And so here you have a study, small study, 200-person randomized trial, really putting on its head 
um, maybe 20 years of clinical practice and the anecdotal, uncontrolled, uh, non-sham experience of many providers. Um, and it ran up against, um, you know, let's be honest, a multi-billion dollar year industry. So, okay, that's my brief summary. So then um, back to ask you. So uh, from my outside observer, and I don't know the authors personally, um, uh, I've interacted with them very little bit on Twitter, especially Dr. Francis, who came out um, guns blazing to defend his study. Um, I feel as if they received quite a bit of criticism. And I feel as if some of that criticism was unfair, um, impugning their study or their motives, um, simply because people did not like the result. And um, I think Daryl Francis um, did a masterful job of using that great British wit and sarcasm um, to really deflect a lot of the criticism and point out um, uh, some things. I think he said someplace on Twitter that people say the study was underpowered. And if you say Orbita was underpowered, but you don't say what you want to power it for, the only thing underpowered is your brain, uh, which I thought were, was quite biting, um, but probably accurate. So I was just curious. Um, I've said before, I think it'll be the most cited study of the decade. Um, this Lancet study, and I think it will be probably one of the most impactful studies of the quarter century. Um, how have you viewed the author's reception? What have been the kind of the discussions at Lancet about this paper? Um, well, I think uh, you know, knowing Rasha uh, personally, mm -hmm. you know, just the amazing grace that she has um, displayed and mm -hmm. having gone through this process of really, you know, it, you're absolutely right in terms of the, you know, when you're putting something that's sort of controverting um, decades of, mm -hmm. of evidence and practice and um, that people, that comes with a lot of vitriol mm -hmm. and um, and to really, to be on the receiving end of that um, and to be able to, you know, continue on and um, and to, to really do your best in, in defending the study and what you've done is, it, I think that they've done a, a magnificent job in doing that. Um, but I think what is also really interesting is it's a good case study in figuring out what the mechanisms are for being able to express differences of opinion, mm -hmm. both in a way that is um, constructive Mm -hmm. um, but but also using our existing outlets. So, you know, right, I think that, that you have also probably been somebody who's talked about this a fair amount on Twitter, but, um, I, you know, a lot of people feel like they don't have um, enough recourse in writing like a letter sort of explaining what their, um, you know, issues are with a study and having that get published inside a traditional journal. And we usually um, have a window, you know, sort of these mm -hmm. linked um, publications mm -hmm. of about two weeks and then sort of it's we kind of have to move on mm -hmm. um, but there are times when we've had to relax those standards because something has made waves in that way mm -hmm. but I'm curious too to kind of hear to put the question back okay. to you of what other forms of critique do you think should be available to other people in a field or or you know to to really to have balance of those opinions and viewpoints that's a, that's a good question. So I guess I would say about this particular issue, Orbita, I had the pl the pleasure of reading all of the letters that The Lancet published and the reply. And I guess I will commend you for, I think you publish quite a breadth of opinions. You publish people making many, many of the points, perhaps even most of the points that I had heard made in every forum. Um, it was multiple letters. I can't remember off the top of my head, but you know, far more than the usual mm -hmm. amount. And I would say about the reply, 
the reply is the single finest crafted letter to the editor I've seen um, in any journal in the last five years. Um, I think it is, I give so much credit to the authors, um, expertly, deftly separating arguments that are plausible from implausible. If the listener has time, look up these letters to Editor in Orbita. Um, I think it's 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 a tour de force. It's how it, it's how it should be done. Um, but you know, I guess uh, you're. You're correct to note on Twitter. I've been uh, pointing out that you know I think there are different venues in which criticism, um, uh, criticism or comments should happen for papers after they're published. Um, the traditional letter to the editor uh, should not go away. I think it ha- obviously has a role. It has a very vital role because it's indexed to the publication, so future researchers can always find things that way. Um, I do like some of these other methods like some journals may have a rapid response section that in real time allows people to post a comment. There is one level of vetting. It is read by somebody to make sure it's not personally disparaging or otherwise inappropriate. And then it's posted online and the authors are actually encouraged. I've been actually gotten some emails saying somebody wrote a comment about your article, will you reply? And I think that's a nice thing to have a little bit of dialogue. We increasingly see, you know, vigorous Twitter discussions and you know, I think Daryl Francis also, I don't know if he was on Twitter before Orbita, and he got on Twitter to defend Orbita, and, and defend he did. Uh, he, he defended it quite vigorously. Um, and I think that's also a, a legitimate forum. If I, you know, I obviously have no control of anything, but if I were to make a suggestion, it would be that, you know, I think at some point some journal may consider um, for like really important articles that really do generate all these waves we were talking about, um, maybe an editor can kind of search through the social media to see what the discussion was and write like a one page box, like these were the major themes that were discussed um, in social media in the few days afterwards and have that come out maybe a month later in the journal. So it'll be indexed to the publication and and you know, um, in the heat of social media, um, I think sometimes there are good points made but it's kind of lost in the uh, the inherent escalation of the media. Um, it would be nice to see that with some distance, some reflection kind of synthesized and the point made uh, without some of the other um, ancillary comments. <laughs> you know, it's I, I love that idea. I think um, especially with so much digitization of of manuscripts and sort of the format in which people digest them now, that um, there really is room to be a lot more flexible, I mm-hmm. think, in thinking about what traditional publications are. And, you know, to, to think of, um, you know, a paper of almost being a, a microsite or, or a mm-hmm. little hub to attach all of these other pieces of information so that they are discoverable and, you know, that you aren't reinventing the wheel by having somebody miss out on all of these comments. And um, But trying to figure out, you know, a way um, to collate comments, you know, from Twitter, for example, mm-hmm. or to, to do that, I think is a really intriguing idea. And I, I love the way you're putting it, like, like the paper is an anchor um, for which we will always be able to come to to discuss this issue. And, and the more the paper can collate things, because the, one of the things of social media is it's, it's so ephemeral. Uh, you know, tweets, uh, they come here today and they're gone tomorrow. Unless, of course, you plan any future political office, then they'll come back. But other, th- other <laughs> yes. than that, they're really gone. I want to ask you, um, this is a little, perhaps a little provocative, and I'm probably going to ask you this at the panel um, at noon. Uh, there's a paper that came out last week in Nature talking about the authors who publish a paper once every five days, 72 papers a year. Uh, they call them the hyper-prolific authors. And I guess I want to say that 
I do not doubt there are people who work very, very hard in this business and are incredibly smart, and they are rightly very prolific. But when somebody puts out more than 70 papers per annum, I really start to wonder if they're publishing in the true spirit and according to the rules of the ICMJE authorship guidelines. And I guess I wonder from the editor point of view, um, you know, so many of the people who are the stars of the field are people who are just maybe publishing more uh, more papers than is possible. Um, is that something you think about, authorship from the journal end? Um, we, we see so many authors on some of these papers and one wonders like, you know, what did they do? Did they really do something? Um, of course, you have to take them at their word. You know, they signed the forms. They say they did it. But how do you how do you guys think about that? Well, you know, one would wonder um, if that falls under sort of ghost authorship mm-hmm. um, or you know gift authorship, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, clearly, it's not something that necessarily would be apparent. I think to an editor, unless. You're an editor within a specialty, and you start realizing that you really have um, repeat customers, mm. I guess, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there is rightly a lot of concern about the volume of papers being published, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I think the the economic models behind you know publishing in in journals and you know what should constitute open access journals and what constitutes hybrid and and others and subscription models and that there are behind the scenes forces of sort of calculating these things but um the converse of that is that we know that people are just publishing more papers period mm-hmm. and that puts so much strain i think on the system that um, we're, that things are going to have to change eventually. And I think that the the way that we sort of accommodate that is not necessarily the best in the best interest of science because if we, for example, have, you know, uh, less rigorous standards of, of review, so maybe fewer reviewers per paper because people are just stretched so thin. Mm-hmm, submitting or, so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you're going and you're just getting so many rejections because people are so already overtaxed mm-hmm. and then you end up getting mm-hmm. kind of people who are not perhaps as well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, suited to, to review that paper, um, is that, the, that there really is a pressure sort of exerted by just this you know, publish anything mm-hmm. model. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I am really one of those people who believes and advocates strongly for the idea of a of a diverse publishing ecosystem. So, mm-hmm. I think preprints too are a really interesting place where. Yeah. I would encourage people perhaps, you know, maybe you don't want to be submitting papers to something with a really low impact factor that may not necessarily be around forever or Mm -hmm. may not be um, a strong enough outlet to be reaching your, the the others that you want Mm -hmm. your paper to go, but maybe a preprint server is. Um, But it's also an interesting topic too, I think from the perspective of a mentoring issue Uh and you as faculty and um, do you encourage your students to publish something at you know anywhere they can, as opposed to potentially putting an idea out there and refining it, and then when when you feel like it's ready, to maybe send it to something that is a bit more solid. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot. There are many layers, I think, to your question of of um, 
what should be uh, concerning sort of authorship behavior for us and what the what the effects are of doing something like that. And it's also, you know, in, um, in other countries such as China, this has definitely been more mm-hmm. of an issue is mm-hmm. how do you vet papers and, uh, but I think also making sure that we have editors there who are, you know, in the space and working mm-hmm. with people and making sure that um, that these same standards of authorship are applied elsewhere is You're really alluding important. to the Lancet's Beijing office, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I and yeah, Helena Wang has done just a tremendous job, I think, of doing outreach around that point. And um, but you, and I think also too, we take for granted that mm-hmm. things like gift authorship is an obvious no-no, but perhaps it is not. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are definitely other cultural contexts where. Um, you know, it's a respect issue. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then I've also, you've, everybody has heard of scenarios where somebody is expected to get included on a paper that they really didn't have anything to do with. And, um, and perhaps that's something that might change too, given all of these uh, conflict of interest issues mm-hmm. that we're now confronting. So uh, it's definitely, it's, it's a conversation that we should be having a lot. I think you said um, so many wonderful things. I echo a lot of what you say, I mean, the idea of, I mean, I do sometimes believe that, you know, after a certain set of journals, which are the journals I say that people actually read, um, I think maybe the rest of the article should just go to a preprint server rather than signing over copyright to some journals that may have very modest impact and maybe behind some paywalls that prevent people from actually reading. In terms of your question about trainees, I guess I fully appreciate and understand um, that one, that that publication is a form of currency and that people do need the papers um, to try to advance to the next level if they desire to be in academics. But I guess I would say that like my personal philosophy is, um, I tell people, you know, you should only publish something if you like actually like believe in it. I, I mean, I actually know some people who've told me kind of, I published a paper and you know what, honestly, once you know how the sausage is made, you don't really want to eat the sausage. And they don't they really don't believe in the conclusion. And, and that really kind of scares me because I'd rather not publish that. Um, I well, I not just rather. I wouldn't I personally wouldn't do it. Um, and I tell the trainees the same thing. and And to be honest, I view like, how can I put it? Maybe I'm a little different than other people. I don't think every trainee has to do research. I think they have to be savvy and understand how papers are constructed, be a good reader, um, have the editor's mind, um, but they don't have to always be the researcher because some people are going to move into a different space and they're not going to have to do it, but they're neat, But everyone will have to be a good consumer and, and, and know how to interpret and read it well. And then I think the reason you do it is just to see, are you that person that it really strikes some chord? And if it strikes that chord in you and that's what you want to do, you know you're gonna go. You're gonna do it, and you should do it. Against, I think the odds are not always so easy. the The pace, the the funding cult climate is very difficult, and it's not easy to publish. And you know you have to hone the craft. And to be a good, and to, if you really want to participate in the academic process, you know for every article you publish, you should be reading like 20 articles. I think that's one thing people forget. They want to publish an article, but they're not avid readers. And I think you have to start by fostering that attitude of. Every, you know, every month I'm going to check my favorite journals and I'm going to go through all the articles and, and I'm going to read the ones that really strike a chord. Um, so I really, you know, I agree with so much of what you say. And I'm just really, I'm very impressed that, you know, it's clear that you spend a lot of time reflecting on the publishing ecosystem and the world of publishing. Maybe you brought this up a little bit, the role of conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. And I think here I'll be very sympathetic to the editors because I think, you know, we've, 
had some recent high-profile cases of failing to disclose um, certain financial arrangements to for-profit companies. Um, and I don't actually fault the editors or the journals at all because I don't think the journals have the resources or capability to be, you know, doing an investigation, an independent audit of every author on every paper. Um, have you guys thought about that at The Lancet? Um, how? What is the role of the journal in enforcing conflict of interest disclosure? And where is the role, honestly, in the hands of somebody else? We have. In fact, uh, you know, I think the the events um, of the last few weeks have really prompted um, our family of journals to figure out, you know, what should we be doing more of uh, or what we're not doing. And I think um, and I'm, I'm not sure if we've finalized mm -hmm. what our path is, but there will certainly be changes to come in how we proceed. Um, I think that, you know, there's by and large, the majority of researchers are ethical and uh, ethical people who have integrity. And so I think that there, are, you know, when there are obvious lapses of judgment around that, um, it sort of unfairly, you know, impugns um, others. And so, um, and I think that we've always sort of taken the tack of that we want to trust the researchers as opposed to what, you know, what we might think. Um, and so that's why I think there's a lot of investigation and using ombudsmen and, um, you know, or working with the institution. That's usually sort of the, the first go-to, I mm -hmm. think, of the editors is to kind of by COPE guidelines is to reach out to the institution, express concern, and kind of move from there. Um, but there are certainly other things that we can do better. And um, and transparency around those, I think, is just going to be a necessity. And so, making uh, you know conflict of interest statements and things like that accessible to the public, um, potentially not behind a paywall under any circumstances. Mm, that's an excellent point. Mm -hmm. So you know, if mm -hmm. you're on PubMed, mm -hmm. that's one that comes up in addition to an abstract. Um, these are easy things to change too. They they don't really require a ton of work. I think on the parts of journals to sort of adhere to that. Um, I think the part that is uh, more worrisome to me is sort of coming into with an attitude of that we have to be investigating where mm -hmm. there are lapses. And I think because we know that there are potentially um, issues with some of the CMS open payment mm -hmm. um, sort of recording in addition to um, what might constitute a conflict mm -hmm. of interest. That's it's there. It gets really complicated, and so, but also I think um, transparency is good for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, it's I would think too, even from the perspective of a researcher who is industry supported, is that not good for the the industry funder to also have their credit in something reflected mm -hmm. by having their um, you know company attached to a paper, mm -hmm. and I think um, that everybody benefits from from knowing how something originated. So I think that. Um, you know, there's just been so many growing pains across the board for academic publishing recently. But I think that I'm I'm very hopeful that there's kind of like a lot of quick actions that can be taken, especially around COIs. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I I applaud you guys for or I applaud I applaud the folks at the Lancet for taking a, a close look at this issue. Um, listeners of the podcast know that I take kind of a little unpopular position on this topic um, because although I'm a supporter of the 
research payments that are provided by the biopharmaceutical industry to universities to fund research. I've been a bit critical about the personal payments that are provided from those biopharmaceutical firms directly to the physicians. And I know that there, and I know because we've done so many studies of it, and I think this is the thing the disclosure has allowed it. It's allowed us to kind of pull the veil back on this phenomenon and actually get a sense of the amount, the size, the scope of these payments. So we know that as you move up the pecking order of academic medicine, the payments get bigger and bigger and there's just a higher percentage, whether that be guidelines writers are are more conflicted than the average community doctor, um, the people who present at the national meetings. And I guess I would say, you know, I support collaboration and people say like, are you against collaboration? I say, I'm not against collaboration at all, but I am kind of against these personal payments because I feel like um, you get pay- we get paid very well to be a doctor, be an academic. Um, certainly a comfortable uh, life can be sustained on that. Um, I don't think the payments are necessary and I do think the collaboration is part of the job. So the analogy I always give is I work a lot with students I've never met with a student and worked with a project on a student that had the student pay me $10,000 afterwards. And and so although I want, you know, academics to collaborate with the industry, I would prefer that they don't go this final step. And and I think divesture rather than disclosure is like the real kind of root solution here. But we'll save that for another day. I wanted to ask you one last thing, and I won't I won't put you on the spot and make you comment, but I want to ask you one last thing, because I know you have a very busy panel to get to. Um, data sharing. Mm-hmm. It's a hot issue, um, and is an issue that I think many of us have been following. And, and by data sharing for the listener, um, I guess we're talking about individual patient-level data for clinical trials um, that were conducted under the auspices of, this is data that we want to use to improve health outcomes for patients broadly. And you're participating in the trial with that reason. And you may not know, but the reality is for most of biomedicine, your data will be held by a few investigators who will have unlimited access to that data, and no other investigators will really have access to the data. That's kind of been the way of the world. Um, about a couple of years ago, the ICMJE had a proposal to share de-identified IPD um, for simply for the variables that constitute the figures and tables in the primary publication. So for instance, the investigator could hold back some secondary analyses that they were going to publish in forthcoming papers, but they would have to provide all the IPD for, say, the Kaplan-Meier curves in the manuscript. And then at the 11th hour, um, the ICMJE walked away from that proposal. So I guess I'm curious how you as an editor, maybe personally, or how The Lancet feels about, you know, this move. Is data sharing coming? Is it just a matter of the right infrastructure? Is data sharing on a hiatus? Is it on the back burner for now? Um, what can what can we expect in the future? I think that's a really good question um, and something that I've also given a lot of thought to. Um, I remember back and when it was still the, uh, the Institute of Medicine um, published uh, a, a bit giant report on um, data sharing and it was sort of my first overture, about f- three or four years ago, um, of the intricacies involved in clinical data sharing. Um, And I think that the biggest obstacle currently is figuring out a way to do it in so that it is protected. Um, And um, but also, you know, that protects the I, I think that there are some sort of 
not claims necessarily, but when you have spent years sort of collecting, uh, you know, cohorts worth of data, um, how to make sure that you are getting credit for that. Mm -hmm. So I I think there's kind of a two-prong thing that needs to happen is that we need to be able to overcome the Mm -hmm. issues with clinical trial data sharing so that to de-identify data, which is, you know, perhaps this is the, the, um, the blockchain time mm-hmm. to be able to make this work. Um, but then you also have sort of these institutional um, mountains to scale, like what do you do with VA data and mm-hmm. things of that nature mm-hmm. where, you know, this isn't just about pharma sharing its right. its data. It's really about protecting it and making sure that an individual's rights are protected. But also, perhaps people would not be as reticent to share share data from the researcher perspective if we could more adequately credit people mm-hmm. with their mm-hmm. contribution. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that comes, journals have a place in helping to facilitate that because, you know, we are, you know, forcing people for PubMed to, you know, have investigator groups and sort of instead of having this laundry list of people who are associated with it. But we need to find better ways to give people credit for the work that they've done. And mm-hmm. so, in you know, there's there's so many researchers worried that, that somebody's going to, you know, come in and scoop a secondary analysis mm-hmm. of data and, you know, after they've spent, you know, years working on something, which I think is a legitimate concern. But um, so also figuring out a way within sort of this protected scope of being able to share data um, to grant access to people to do secondary analyses, for example, but to make sure that credit is given. I think um, UK Biobank has been really transformative and mm. kind of showing that this can be done. Um, I'm really interested to see what the analogous US-based um, groups doing work in this area will kind of figure out how to do this. But um, I think from a purely efficiency standpoint, data sharing is a necessity and Mm -hmm. we have to be supportive of this. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, infrastructure too is also really important um, because you don't want to force journals to be repositories of data. So we have Mendeley, for example, is one of the Elsevier products for data sharing. And so there's options within when you submit a study that you could have it housed on Mendeley if you don't already have those resources. But then we also really, journals need to very much um, partner and be speaking with institutions, libraries, data librarians are hugely important Mm. and completely under-recognized entity within Mm. this space um, to encourage people from the before they have begun collecting data to sort of map out, you know, in addition to having a statistical analysis plan, what is your data sharing plan? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, really reaching those early career um, researchers and talking about them and putting them in touch with the institutional resources that they've got to do that. Um, And, you know, making sure that there's forums for people to discuss what the best practices are. That, I think, is kind of the way of the future. It's going to take a while. And Mm. but um, but I do think and there's going to be complete heterogeneity in who is compliant with this at first. Um, I think data sharing statements are kind of uh, first wave because it very quickly tells you who is antagonistic toward these proposals and who is not. Mm -hmm. Um, But Mm. uh, we're going to have to map out different 
systems about where those data are coming from, where they're housed, and what the what the gaps are. That's uh, that's very well said, and I think you've hit on so many of the important themes in the in the space. And um, you know, yesterday I was telling you a little bit about long form podcasting, where people are now going to interviews for you know even up to three hours. And I know, Dr. Cooney, I can so easily do that with you because um, you've thought so much and so deeply and so well about so many of the topics that are near and dear to my heart. Um, but you have a panel to get to, and uh, I cannot keep you any longer. Um, so let me thank you so much. Um, I think it was a pleasure to hear your Grand Rounds this morning. It was uh, been a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, and I think listeners uh, will feel comforted uh, to know uh, that behind the Lancet um, is such a thoughtful editor. Uh, oh, so thank, thank you so you. much for, for yeah, coming on. This is great, great fun for me, and it's I feel like it's such a treasure to have time to to spend with people like yourself who are really up to speed on things and make make us think more. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Cooney. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host. Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, plenary session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.